You're listening to A Conversation Between Friends, benefiting at last. For more information, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin the discussion with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. Hey, P1s, thank you for tuning into this special conversation. Something a little different tonight. That's something I hope that will be beneficial. I want to bring you a new voice and a new perspective here on the ticket. Randy Bowman has been my friend for over 20 years. Now, Randy and I are different in some ways. He's black. I'm white. He grew up in Pleasant Grove. I grew up in Richardson. He's extremely smart. And I only recently stopped mispronouncing Expresso. I have that embarrassing admission on the air this week. Well, in the aftermath of the Amy Cooper Central Park incident and the George Floyd killing, Randy and I started communicating back and forth. And it led us to having several heartfelt conversations. And these conversations were meaningful to each of us, but I know especially to me. So I asked Randy if he wouldn't mind coming on the air with me and having one of those conversations between friends that that might help during a time of, of you know hurting and sort of provide a guide of how two people from different backgrounds can talk about their experiences and insights in good faith. So now to Randy. Your story is interesting because you've had, you grew up differently than you live now. Much differently, yes. So tell me a little bit about how you grew up. How would you describe your your upbringing and your experiences? So I would describe it just for purposes of of brevity, I would describe it as we were, we were an impoverished family living in Pleasant Grove. Uh, I view myself as having been raised primarily by my mother and she had four kids and we lived in Pleasant Grove and it was a difficult existence. And so all of the things associated with urban, urban poverty, you would probably associate with our experiences over there. And, and so that's how I frame life. Like I spent a lot of time sort of in that condition. And so I see the world through that lens often. And my life is very different from that. Now we are, uh, we are nowhere near poor. Like that's not our life Mm -hmm. at all. Well, you're one of the most successful guys that I know. Thank you. As a matter of fact, you may be the most successful guy (laughs) I know. Do you consider me knowing Jerry Jones? I don't know if that would even... I haven't been friends with him for 20 years like I've been friends with you for 20 years. That is, uh, I accept that. I Uh accept that. And I also accept the fact that there's no way I'm as successful as Jerry Jones. You're right about that. (laughs) (laughs) From a monetary standpoint. When you were facing the problems that you were facing growing up, how many kids were you, did you guys have in the house being raised by your mom? Four kids in the house. Four kids in the house. Yes. So how did you become the Randy that I know today? from this impoverished background? Because a lot of people would say, look at your success story and say, see, bootstraps. Absolute wrong takeaway. I did not lift myself by my bootstraps, nor does anyone else. And the success that I have as a business person now, I do not create that success solely on my own. You know, there's a country and an economy and a political system that allows each of us to get where it is that we're trying to go. So I would, I would start with that. And I would say that as much as anything, I was a relative lightning strike. And you don't base public policy off of lightning strikes. 
you base it off of the things that occur most. So back to our family, the, uh, the truth is that my, my experience was that my mother and I raised our family. I was the oldest boy, and so there are certain obligations that go along with that, and I didn't mind those obligations, and I don't need anybody's sympathy around those obligations. But they do come to uh, inform you about how challenging it is to live that life. I would still put forth that there's nothing harder to do in America than to live poor. And the thing that I would supplement that with is if you're living poor and in poor health. Those are the things that I saw my mother struggle with most was just wrestling with her own poverty and her own um, volatile health and the volatile health of her children and knowing that she wasn't giving us the educational resources and tools we needed to make a better life and just the impact that that had on her and the quality of her life and just uh, the fullness of her soul, how her soul felt. And so that was, it was really, really uh, difficult. I mean, it's a very hard road to travel, but I think we were able to make it through because as I've said to folks before, I have an amazing heavenly father and a really, really great earthly mother. And that's sort of what got me through. And so I was willing to ride on that. It's like, that's what I have. And that's what we'll make this work with. We'll go with that. And so you, you come out of that and you say, it worked out for me. But it doesn't matter that it worked out for me. There are plenty for whom it did not work out, including you know, one of my brothers. And so you go through the world with your perspective shaped by the experiences that you've had. Those are my experiences. I see the world through the lens of an impoverished child. And I hope I always do. And having known you as long as I have, I know part of your story, but I, because you weren't always responsible, Randy, that I know who is always kicking ass and always thinking straight. You at one time were a young punk like I was. <laughs> where did you turn and where do you see your brother turning? I think it's amazing that you think I was ever able to achieve the level of young punkness that you were. I think that's amazing. <laughs> So I dominate that category. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm nowhere close <laughs> to you on that one, brother. You win. Um, you know, in terms of where it is that I that I turned or pivoted, I tend to think of it as a less useful broad reference because it was driven by necessity. It's not as if I woke up one day and had an epiphany and said, I need to be a better person. Like, that didn't happen. But it did turn out that when I was... Um, 10, 11 years old, it became obvious that we needed me to help make the household work. And so, you know, if you see your mother struggling to make something happen, and you, you tend to grab a laboring oar and try and make it work. So really, I don't remember waking up one day and deciding I'm going to be responsible. I remember waking up one day and needing to be responsible to make life easier to whatever degree I could for my mom. So I started working. Well, I had a hustle in the neighborhood at like 10, 11, and then I had a job at 12. What hustle? You know, it's a hustle, Gordon. So so there's there was a car wash at Jim Miller and Luke 12, and I went to that car wash with some fragrance. And as people would wash their cars, I would walk up to them afterwards and ask them if I could deodorize their car for a dollar. And if they said yes, 
I deodorized their cars. If they said no, I'd go to the next car. So that was, that was sort of my, my hustle. That was my introduction, honestly, to entrepreneurship. So it started then, and then it went uh, from there to clearing the field behind a go-kart track when I was 11 or 12, and they paid us either in go-kart track rides or in money. Okay, I needed the money. I didn't need the fun, so I passed on the rides, and I took the money. The ticket still pays me in go-kart rides, by the you way. You know, it's, it's not a bad deal if you can get it, <laughs> but it's also not your best deal. <laughs> Right, so stop doing that. I'm not. I didn't ever said I was a great businessman. Yeah, I right. just like go kart rides. I think you're doing okay. I think you're doing okay. So, and then after that, I got a I got a job in a diner when I was 12 on Walnut Hill and I 35 with my cousin Howard. And from there, when I was 13, I got a job at Timberline Psychiatric Hospital in the kitchen, washing dishes, pots and pans. And from that point until I graduated high school, I worked at Timberline Psychiatric Hospital. And then my second job was um, uh, Del Taco on Buckner. And then I was off in college and started working the jobs I had to work to get through college. So, Where'd you go to college? University of Texas at Austin. And did you get your law degree from there or you got your law degree from somewhere else? I left there and went and got my law degree at Whittier College School of Law in Los Angeles. And then... Somewhere in there, weren't you doing entertainment law? Was that the law you were focusing on? Yeah, I've I've always loved music. I've always loved music. I made most of my college money DJing parties, the vast majority of my college money. So I, um, my interest in music turned into an interest in wanting to do entertainment law because I was interested in the assets involved in, in that practice. So, yeah, I graduated. Law school went well for me, and I was able to get a job at a large law firm here back in Dallas. And when I came here, I started a corporate finance practice where I was assigned to their corporate finance group and did mergers and acquisitions, initial public offerings, all those things, all those deals where you create commerce. And I really wanted to be able to create commerce. That was what I was attracted to. But I also wanted to do something that was interesting to me otherwise, which was entertainment law, because I just loved the assets in that industry. And that was my practice, corporate finance and entertainment. Can we say who one of the greatest rap acts of all time that you worked with? You know, I think that uh, I think you're describing that generously. Um, who do we have to thank you for? You know, I, I know the admission you want me to make, so I will Come admit on. it. So, yes, my first client uh, in entertainment law was Vanilla Ice. I don't know that the applause is merited. The crowd loves it. The crowd <laughs> love it. So that was... It's an interesting story, and I'm grateful for it. But, yeah, that was my first client. And I was in my second month of the practice of law when I started working on you know, those projects that were involved with uh, Vanilla Ice's launch and the independent label he was associated with before he got to the major, all that stuff. So it was, I mean, that was great. That was my first client. And I continued to practice law for another 12 years. And my final clients in the practice of law in the entertainment area were members of Destiny's Child. And in between those two, I had a lot of other clients that I was really proud of, really enjoyed working with. It was a fun practice. I'm glad I did it. And then you went into other businesses that became very successful. You've had several different careers in your career. I mean, like, I've had one, basically, <laughs> this one, which you ought to know because you were one of the first people who I ever worked with to, well, I think I came to you when I was first offered a deal from the ticket and said, will you look at this? 
because I don't know what I'm looking at here, and you help me out. Yes. Coming up next, we get into media agendas, outside agitators, and the dangerous idea that all police are racist. Stay with us. You're listening to A Conversation Between Friends, benefiting at last. For more information, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin the discussion with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. Let's get to what we got to discussing when you and I talked over the weekend, because this has been such an emotional time for America right now. Mm -hmm. Do you see that what's going on now is different than the reaction towards other police shootings that have been controversial or other law enforcement related killings? Yes. Yes. Just the breadth of the engagement, the breadth of the protest, and then the depth of it. It's occurring in many, many more cities, and the size of the crowd is different in terms of the size of the protesters. Even if you net out those who are participating for nefarious purposes rather than for you know, the pure purpose of the protest, and it's gone on for longer, it has endured longer. This is clearly not. This is clearly not a problem that a politician's soundbite is going to be able to address. So I do see it as as different qualitatively and quantitatively you watch the media coverage there's so many vectors and facets to what we're going through right now one of them is that when you watch media coverage do you think that the media is doing a decent job of covering this do you think that they're focusing on things that they're overemphasizing are they painting an accurate picture of what's happening out there you know i think the media is doing a good job of being the media you know, like their their business model is we need people to consume us so that we can make money. And so they're putting forth the storylines that bring about that outcome. And so I don't know that it gives a fully formed view of the protesters motivation. I don't know that it gives a, a fully formed view of what the protester experiences on the front line. I think it skews toward the things that make for the best pictures. So when you find that folks have joined a protest for whatever nefarious reasons they may have, and they engage in uh, destruction of property or looting or acts of violence, that I think gets overamplified because of the needs of media. And I get that because that's, that's the business. And I don't know that it benefits the citizen who's trying to learn more about what's really at the heart of this, but I do understand why the media does it. And so that's a limitation. And then you have the limitation of perspective. You know, until, we get, if we, until we get a broader representation of perspectives and viewpoints, making decisions on the assignments that are executed by the media and the stories that are covered by the media, you wind up not getting the breadth of stories that you might get otherwise. So I think given the constraints that the media operates with, it's trying to be sensitive to the story that's happening here. One thing that I get confused about when I watch and read is the prospect uh, potential of outside agitators. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard each side talk about outside agitators. I've heard the violence is outside agitators. And it's Antifa groups. And it's, it's all these shadow groups that are coming in and causing all this mayhem. And then I heard some of my progressive friends say, no, these are the actual protesters who are showing you that they're not just it's not just going to be another peaceful protest that you're comfortable with that doesn't seem to ever move the needle enough. When middle America is not uncomfortable 
with a protest, the protest seems to not have any sort of impact long term. And that the only way that change truly comes about is when there is physical confrontation in some way. I hear a mixed message. I don't understand who's doing what and which side feels which way. What do you make of the the narrative of the outside agitator, which has a historically negative connotation? Yeah, you're going to have, for as many agenda as exist out there, you're going to have interpretations of the images that unfold in front of them. So we certainly know that there are people beyond those who are out there protesting purely the issue of police brutality resulting in the end of a black man's life in what strikes many of us, including me, as murder. We clearly know that there are people beyond that that are engaged in these protests and that they take actions beyond expressing the pure message that needs to be brought across. So we know that for sure. I would imagine that depending upon the city you're in, the state you're in, the protests you're attending, the composition of who the outside agitators are can and will be different. The other thing that I think about with this is that even among those who are out there with pure protest in their heart, frustration may cause some of them to act outside of the protests that they had planned. When you walk past a store and you're a person who feels as if, and this isn't just your feeling, you have experienced being locked out of the opportunity to pursue your ambition in life. And you walk by a retail outlet that may be a franchise. And the person who owns it owns that one location. You may, in your frustration, kick that window in. And you're kicking in the window of someone who's pursuing their ambition in life. They had that opportunity and they're pursuing that ambition. You, however, as a person kicking in that window, may be expressing the frustration that you have that you never even had the opportunity to pursue your ambition. It doesn't make it the right thing to do. But I think we need to see the fullness of the American experience in all the actors that are involved in this. I think it helps you to understand it better. And then I think we need to step back from it and ask ourselves, are the, are the protesters closer to getting this right as a protest than the policymakers are in getting it right, ending police brutality? That's sort of how I view it. It seems like many people get so distracted by visions of looting, visions of violence, that it blinds them to the whole rest of the story. I know on the air, I, I said recently, you know, that if something to the effect of if you're getting more upset by images of looting than you are of the image of the guy with the knee on his neck that is murdered on video, then you need to ask yourself why. Why is this getting such an emotional reaction out of me seeing someone taking a TV than seeing someone who is supposed to protect us killing someone while people around him are informing him, you are killing someone right now. And he goes ahead with brazen indifference. Yes. You mentioned something about people doing the wrong thing. They see a business. They see someone who's had an opportunity. They just see that as a success, and they're frustrated in their own life, feel like they've been denied the opportunity to pursue something to, to the degree that this shop owner has, obviously, and they kick the window, and it's wrong. But to me, it feels like too many people stop at it's wrong rather than say it's wrong and then, okay, why is this person doing this wrong thing? 
because it's in the why is the person doing this wrong thing that we where we need to focus. And if you're trying to direct our country in a positive direction, you have to address why people do wrong things rather than just stop down at someone's wrong. Let's throw them away. Yeah, I think that's right. So a couple of things jump out at me with that. Number one, I think images trigger cognitive reaction. And oftentimes you attract it to the interpretation of the image that you fear. When white America sees that police officer with his knee on that black man's neck, killing him, that's not necessarily an image that evokes fear because that is not going to be your experience. When you see someone, however, compromising somebody's property rights, that image invokes fearing you because you're thinking, I have things and I don't want my things destroyed or taken. That's what I think drives that reaction. I still think it's unhelpful to focus on the loss of property over and above the backdrop of the loss of a human life, which is why we're here having this conversation. You'll notice that you don't see a lot of looting and kicking in of storefronts following the days when you don't kill black men with police officers. So, There is a causal relationship there. And I think we ought to give that causal relationship the focus. And it strikes me as a disingenuous veto to say, I veto all of your concerns about police brutality. And if I don't veto them, then I want to place them second in the prioritization because these other things are happening as well. I see that as a disingenuous veto, and I don't think it's particularly helpful. Speaking of disingenuous vetoes, Let's say that you have a person who supports law enforcement, has friends, family in law enforcement. They feel like it's a disingenuous veto to paint all police with the same brush of they're all racist and we need to defund the police, although that is a little bit more of a... It's more nuanced. It is much more nuanced yeah. than, than it sounds with just describing it as defund the police. Right. There's a lot of bigger conversation there, but... But the point being that it's a disingenuous veto to reject the other side of the argument, which is that not all police are racist and and that this is not something that all police engage in. Right. But they feel not listened to when they bring that up because they can easily be dismissed as being racist or a host of other things that we use to dismiss hearing criticism or, or critique of an argument. Yeah, we don't grow by being dismissive of the other person's argument. We don't grow in that. Even if we believe their argument is entirely wrong. If you're dismissive of it, we don't grow in that. The person who you think is wrong can't grow if all you do is dismiss their argument rather than address it. So there's that. Here's the other thing. I will never buy into the mantra that all police are racist. Beyond the caveat that many would issue that would say, Every human being is racist. And then a psychologist would take you to the end of that analysis and tell you why. So taking that and putting it aside, I don't buy into the argument that all police are racist. Partially because I know a lot of police officers and have experiences with them outside of law enforcement before they became law enforcement officers. I know what their motivations were for doing it. My best friend as a child growing up from ninth grade on, who was also the best man in my wedding, this guy named Cobby Morrison. He's a police officer, was when he was in my wedding. One of my best friends from college, Gerald Edwards, FBI police. He was in my wedding, still one of my best friends. Sheldon Smith leads the Black Police Officers Association, national president. 
pledged at the same time that I did. Good friend of mine. Good dude. Jeffrey Jacobs went to SMU, police officer, grew up in Oak Cliff. Dexter Ingram grew up in my neighborhood. All of these are police officers. I know these guys. I know it's in their heart. No, I don't, I don't buy that all police officers are racist. I do, however, buy into the argument that says we allow too many who should never have gotten into the police academy to get a badge and to get the power to operate under the color of the state. And then once that happens, we give them too broad a latitude because we have to protect the ability of a police officer to make a mistake. And so you start by letting someone in the academy who should never have been there based on their psychological profile, their emotional makeup. So you let them in and then you give them a gun, a badge, and the ability to operate under the color of the law. And then you have to give them the protection that you give the good officers who are going to make a mistake even on the days when they show up with their best intent and use their best judgment. It's training, but it's screening that precedes that. And then when they violate the latitude that they are given, they have to be prosecuted and held to account. That's the way this works. But you cannot dismiss all police officers as being racist. It's just not consistent with my experience with them. And I've had bad experiences with the police, more than my share. You want to get into that? Yeah, you know, if you do, I do. So why not? Yeah. So, All right, stay with us. Coming up next, Randy and I compare our experiences with law enforcement. You're listening to A Conversation Between Friends, benefiting at last. For more information, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin the discussion with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. How many instances would you say that you've had bad well, interactions with cops? I've, I've had, heck, I mean, more than 10. I don't, I'm not going to be able to show you enough fingers to reflect it, right? So let me just grab two You can take stories. off your shoes if you need to, yeah, and a few digits to no, no great keep going. That. We're good. So um, two that stand out to me. One was I'm a freshman in college. I come home from college. I am at a roller skating rink. I am leaving in my car and I'm encountered by a police officer who is really upset about something. Uh, I say hello to him. He says something uh, aggressive to me and I give him a look that says, I'm surprised by that response, but only a look that says that. And then I proceed to go get in my car and he says, open his trunk. I want to see what you have in there. I bet you have some drugs in there. Open his trunk. And you know, it's, it's not a great use of my time to argue with this guy. Because I'm trying to lift my family out of poverty and I really don't have time for his foolishness. So I tell him, I was like, if you want me to open my trunk, I will. You will find nothing in there. And neither one of us will be improved by this. But if you want me to, I will. He says, open your trunk. I open my trunk. He rifles through it. And it's only later that a friend of mine told me that was a really dumb thing to do because you never know what he would have thrown into your trunk. But it was a very negative interaction with him where he was being overly aggressive. The next thing that really stands out to me was much worse than that one. I am practicing law in downtown Dallas at one of the larger firms in the city. I have to work late because we work late when we're doing deals. It's 1030 at night. I'm walking to one of the the, uh, remote parking lots away from the building. I was in the big green building, 901 Main Street. I'm walking to a remote parking lot. I have on an overcoat, obviously business shoes, a suit, and I'm carrying a massive briefcase because this is back when you carried your deal documents in your briefcase. I walk to my vehicle out in the parking lot, and because I'm from the Grove, 
I walk around my vehicle before I get into it because that's what you do. So I walk around the vehicle to make sure everything's good. And then I get into it as I put my briefcase in the vehicle. Police cars come screaming up. First are two of them. One screaming in from one direction of the parking lot, the other from the other direction of the parking lot. The police officer jumps out, draws his gun. He's about 10 feet away from me in the car, draws his gun and says, put your hands on the car. Now, I'm shocked. So I follow all of his orders. In the interim, several other police cars arrive and they circle me in the car, building about a 20-foot perimeter around us. And all of them have drawn their weapons. And I'm telling the officer when he comes to me, I was like, you're going to be really embarrassed when you realize that you've taken this action against a lawyer in town who's executing a deal for a company that's a large taxpayer here in this town, and you've drawn your weapon on me and so have your, your colleagues. If you could put your weapon away, I'd feel a lot more comfortable. And he uh, remains aggressive, says a lot of things to me that I'm not in the mood to hear and that I certainly don't deserve to hear. And I look out, and among the ring of officers who were there, there's an officer of color. And he's got this look on his face where I can tell that he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want me to be there. And he's hoping that I don't do anything foolish because he knows that I'm on the verge of a bad moment. That one stands out to me. Because there's such a fine line to going bad quickly. There was no reason for them to approach me. Nothing about my appearance suggested that I was a criminal. Nothing about the environment where we were, downtown Dallas, Central Business District, right outside of the buildings where the lawyers work, suggested I was doing anything wrong. My dress, my briefcase, everything said that I should be going to my vehicle to go home. So, yeah, he was afraid. And I think he should have been. I had my own concerns. Were you scared, shitless at that point? You know, I realized that... um, I was a mistake away from this being it. See, and I don't think people who've had no interaction with the police and I've had a few, uh, nothing. I bet you have. (laughs) I mean, nothing really horrible, but you know me, I, I, I speed quite a bit and that's not good. It's not defensible in any way, but I've probably been pulled over more than the average bear. Mm hmm. Um, and I've had interactions with police that get amped up. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, white privilege is such a fraught concept for a lot of people. A lot of people just hear the term and tune out because they, they're just either programmed to reject it because it was a concept that was cooked up in academia and now it spreads to all of us. And now we're all supposed to admit to it. And, And it's a tune out to a lot of people. But even those people that it's a tune out to, I I would hope that they would just think about this idea of it's almost the water you swim in, in a sense, Hmm. because I probably talked to cops in a way that I was not as subservient as they wanted me to be Hmm. during this interaction and and as submissive. I I never got physical with a cop or anything like that, but just, you know, maybe a little bit too smart, Alec, for my own good. I bet. But I think that Part of me was doing that because I was a jerk and younger. And then part of me was doing it because I knew that 
I didn't feel a threat to my life, or I certainly was not primed to believe that because of my race that this could go wrong. Right. I felt comfortable enough to be that way, in other words. And the fact that your reality being so different than mine here in this episode in which you are not speeding, you you are certainly better dressed than any time I've ever been in my car ever when I've been pulled over. And you have to be so very careful with the way you respond because you know what could happen on the other end of tripping over this tripwire. Yeah. And what frustrates me is that when these incidents happen, like the one that you came close to having something bad happen to you perhaps, whether it's getting hit, beat, pushed down on the ground, uh, face in the on the pavement, or God forbid a gunshot goes off, that you were that close to it going that direction. And the fact that if there's no video of it, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm just gonna take the officer's word. I'm sitting home in my couch in Safe America. Yeah, we just take the officer's word. That's right. I mean, you must have done something wrong, Randy. If 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 twenty cops that's right all shot at you at once, that means right. all twenty of them agreed that you had done something wrong. You know, so yeah, yeah. And now that we have video, fortunately, we see that it, the officer's account should not be taken as gospel reflexively should not be taken as truth. Now, I agree that being an officer and being sworn to uphold truth and law and all those sorts of things, that doesn't mean nothing. Right. But it doesn't mean everything. That's right. That's right. It's not a permanent truth serum. It's sort of not the way that that operates. And you know, why? while you were going through that, I thought about something and it's, um, I, I don't think it's anything I've ever told you about before. I can't imagine I would have. It would have been uh, a different kind of moment for me. But the lesson of the police are not always on your side, even when you're right, even when you're the victim, was um, taught to me at an early age. And not just because of my mother's warnings, which were plentiful. But I was um, attacked and beaten viciously by a white man when I was eight years old. So that resulted in me having surgery the next day. And I still like have the scar of that, right? So you reminded of it daily. Now that's not the object of the story. The object of the story is that my family called Uh, the family, and we sort of went up to the place uh, the night that it happened, and the sheriff showed up. And the sheriff defended that guy, told me and my family to go home, said that I had done something wrong, and nothing ever happened to that person. The only thing that came out of that night was my surgery and the everlasting scar. You learn the lesson early, not because your parents tell you, but because life teaches you that they're not necessarily on your side. Certainly not when you make it granular down to the individual cop. So watch yourself, buddy. That's what I know. And my experience was always, if something is wrong, run to law enforcement. 
They'll always help you. Yeah. Yeah. Two different perspectives, two different life experiences. And so it makes sense that when we watch these images on television, they evoke different emotions. And when we talk about it publicly, it brings about a different dialogue. We should just not only hear each other, but let your hearing lead you to be changed and to be willing to do something. You know, your, your innermost held reservations about what's happening to others doesn't really help them if you don't do anything. You become the person that Martin Luther King wrote about in his letter from Birmingham, from Birmingham jail. Don't be that person. We read that on the air uh, portion of it. Uh, anyway, this past week, white people love to quote Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. yeah. And they choose particular parts of things that he said that are most friendly, I would say, to the status quo. But the letter from the Birmingham jail, I, I, I won't be able to do it justice, but it was it was something to the effect of those those silent moderates being the biggest challenge right. to moving black people forward. Right. It's the, the silent complicity of people preferring order over justice. So when you have an experience like that at eight years of age, those things that happen to us young become the understandable prism with which everything else that happens afterwards is filtered through. And you grow up and you have other friends that, that become law officers, and you mentioned a host of them earlier. Have you talked to them since this has happened? Have you talked to any of those guys? And, and if you have, what has been their take on the way law enforcement is viewed now? So, quick thing on MLK. I will remind you. Yeah, I didn't really allow you to no, it's <laughs> comment okay. on that. It's okay. It's okay. But Only I, I can talk about MLK right, today. Right. I understand why that <laughs> becomes your birthright. Um, so, the you mentioned how popular he is to quote now as sort of a inoculation against any criticism of any mindset. What I recall most is that in 1966, uh, his disapproval rating in the U.S. was 63%. So at the time when he needed his words quoted most, he was among the most hated men in America. To use them now to inoculate at best benign neglect of the folks whose interests he sought to advance, you know, is um, at some level offensive. At some level offensive. So, yes, I have um, had conversations with some of my friends who are in law enforcement since this occurred, and I feel especially badly for them because I know that they committed to being a police officer for a reason and for a purpose, and they are trying to serve that purpose. They serve that purpose in a uniform that the community out of which they arose formulates a lot of negative emotion to not just the uniform, but the person inside of the uniform. And it makes it really, really hard when you know that the institution of policing has allowed police officers, some of them, to dishonor the institution so much that you can't even do the job right wearing the uniform without taking on the hatred that's really targeted at those who do the job wrong. I think that they need to clean house of those who do the job wrong for the good of policing. 
don't do it for me. Do it for the good of policing and do it for my friends who are committed to doing that job well. I hope they do. Yeah, it's almost as if the idea of police protecting their ranks is that idea of protection is misplaced. It's not protecting every individual officer who does wrong, and we can't admit that they did wrong in order to present a united front police-wise. That is it's a misapplication. You should be protecting law enforcement, not bad law enforcement officers. And to protect law enforcement and the vision that we have of them, you need to show how aggressively those are the people you should be going after the most, mm-hmm. not the least, mm-hmm. is, is a bad police officer who is doing things that you are going to have to be colored with. Right. That's right. Certainly now the culture is forcing that to be changed, I would assume. But for forever, it was just a cop's word and a cop's actions were unassailable. Yeah, and I, you mentioned the word culture. I think that's the target. You have to change the culture of policing and have it be something that targets uh, not the preservation of this legacy culture, this sort of written down the generations, but rather protecting the institution of policing and the role that it should play in society. I think that's why when you see even a person of color introduced as the chief of police, it still takes a while to get the individual officers to modify their behavior among the ranks. And it's because they really answer to a culture more so than they do a police chief. The culture outlasts every police chief that comes in. And so really the culture reigns supreme. And the police chief is a temporary steward of the institution. But the culture governs. When you discuss police culture right. outliving any particular police chief, right. if you go into a prison, from what I understand, I have not spent any time in prison, but from what I've read is Haven't that... you? <laughs> no. Okay. Only in role play, uh, <laughs> Randy. Um, the, uh, but Very you, unfortunate. If you go into a prison, <laughs> I mean, it seems like that is where you actively segregate for protection. The yeah. black guys stay with the black guys. The white guys join white guys. Uh, brotherhoods and Hispanics stick together. This is an unfair comparison in some sense. It's just, to me, an observation. When you go into police forces in big cities, your police unions, which are very strong, they divide up along those same lines. Police unions are pretty strong. Yes. And what seems strange to me is like a, a lot of people who in everyday life are anti-union, we're real right to work, and we're real, we don't like anyone unionizing, but they will support the police union like you won't believe. Yes. I mean, go police unions. They yes. love those. But are police unions, I wonder, really good for, for the culture of policing? I don't know the answer to this, by the way, and I don't yeah. really expect you to. You know, it's, yeah, I don't have the answer, but I'm happy to offer a perspective. I mean, the bottom line is, despite whatever successes I've had in life, I always think that the capital has a stronger hand in the relationship between the capital and the workers. And the more dangerous your work, the more you need a union. Mm -hmm. The weaker your bargaining position, the more you need a union. Now, getting that union to perform a role that's productive for the institution and the industry is a separate question. 
But I'm never going to advocate for a world where you have to go out there and put your life at risk at the beginning through the end of every shift. And I don't want you to be able to sort of collectively bargain for what gives you a better chance to get home to your family at the end of the evening. I do want the Constitution to be a constraint on you, though. Okay, next, we're going to take a look at poverty and the scars it leaves you with and what that can do to a person, to a culture, to generations. Next. You're listening to A Conversation Between Friends, benefiting at last. For more information, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin the discussion with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. You being a successful businessman, you'll have more insight than I would have on this. Uh, I don't understand macro or microeconomics, which pretty much wipes out all economics there. That covers it all, buddy. (laughs) So, so, uh, one of the pieces of this puzzle... A huge piece of this puzzle it was one of the three pillars that you even addressed here was this the concept of poverty. And I think in general, white America does not appreciate the stacked deck of having a population that was once enslaved. And then you had a series of control mechanisms after slavery is abolished that keeps people from acquiring wealth, generational wealth. And when you don't have economic opportunity and don't have the ability to accrue and pass on wealth and have a culture of opportunity, then it's extremely hard to ever get to a point where you are at the starting line to even get to your own bootstraps. First, you got to have bootstraps. Yeah. So how do you address the poverty element when you have so many generations and decades and centuries of not having it, how do you get the black community into a position where poverty is not crippling all elements of of life, or at least handicapping them to even get to the starting line? Yeah, that's uh, that's another one that winds up being a fairly daunting challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there are, I think it starts with really understanding how the problem arises, because it's pretty easy for someone to stand outside the black community, look within it and look at the poverty that's within it. And it's helpful if people realize that that poverty exists in other communities also, by the way. But you look at the poverty that exists in that community and you say, why can't they get their act together? Why are they poor? They're still poor. They were poor 20 years ago. They were poor 40 years ago. They were poor 100 years ago. Why can't they get their act together? And that's, um, it's a fairly convenient argument to run to. But you know, there's, um, if you don't start with sort of understanding how it is that that evolves, it's easy to become unsympathetic to that plight. I do think it's important to remember that wealth that was generated generations ago under circumstances, laws, and regulations that we are ashamed are associated with our country are the predicate for this. I've had more than my share of white friends who said, I don't want to hear about anything that happened a hundred years ago. They're like, all right, great. Well, then you surely don't want to hear about the thing I want to talk about. We started 400 years ago, right? Like you have no interest in any of this. And I get it because it, it defeats your perception of where you belong and how you got there on the basis of a meritocracy. But something is passed down from every generation. We understand well that benefits are passed down from one generation to another. Somehow, we don't accept the notion that burdens are passed down from one generation to another. And if the state of American law 
and economy was arranged at one point to where the great tailwinds of America's resources formulated in the sales of certain groups, and it was white America, that as people died and passed those benefits down from one generation to another, there wasn't a generation where all of those benefits sort of ceased to become part of your family's wealth. On the other side of the divide, there are the burdens that come out of that period of time that we're discussing. Those burdens are passed down. And those burdens that are being passed down are things like, have you ever read the book, The Color of Law? No, I've heard that recommended to me, but have not read it yet. Yeah, it's not a novel. It's not like leisure reading, right? Mm -hmm. But it's great reading. And it tells you how the policy of the American government in the 30s was that we will root African-Americans out of areas of home ownership that they share with whites and put them into public housing uh, projects. So that's thing one. And thing two, we are going to enable developers to develop suburbs. And we're going to support the loans that they need to get that done. We will guarantee those loans unless they allow black families to live there. So, Look at Levittown, New York at some point, by the way. 17,000 single-family homes built in this program that I'm discussing. But if you weren't allowed to own homes in the areas that were choice, then as the folks who were allowed to buy those homes, as they had debts that occur in the family and they were passing the assets down from one generation to another, home ownership is a wealth builder. You use that wealth to leverage into other opportunities. If you're in a housing project, it works differently. Burdens are passed down from generation to another, just like benefits are. And that's how the the wealth gap forms that we have. It's not the only thing that's attributable, that it's attributable to, but it's a major player. I'll formulate the question for you differently. You want the other side of that deal? You want the side of the deal where the government says we're going to actually have the black people able to own the homes. We're going to put the white people into the projects and we're going to formulate suburbs. And we're going to fund developers who build those homes for blacks as long as they don't allow white people in. You don't want that deal. Turns out we don't either. But we were given that deal. So you have to understand sort of how it is that poverty evolves. There are educational implications that arrive with that decision that was made by the federal government in the 30s. Now, somehow, we still have to find a way to win and to move forward. And I don't mind. If that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. But as we try and find our way forward, let's not pretend as if this evolved out of a neutral setting where uh, the power of the federal government and America's resources weren't aligned to create where we are now. It starts with understanding how we got here. So that's a really long sort of step one. (laughs) You kind of have to start with knowing how we got there. Beyond that, it goes back to education. Man, you have to educate impoverished kids well enough to where they can chase their version of the American dream. If you don't educate them well enough to chase that version of the American dream, they don't have a fair shot at it. They're not fully participating in it. And I think that you also have to educate them well enough to be able to fend for themselves in a democracy. Those things are important. Start with education, and I think we will make a lot of progress with regard to uh, alleviating poverty. I don't know a more predictable solution for that.
as you said, you even had some of your white friends say, you know, I don't want to hear anything about that's happened before. Right. Which automatically handicaps their understanding for what is now if you don't want to know about anything that happened before. But yet they also would still believe that what has been the mantra of every single set of parents that have come through the pike, which is I want my kids' lives to be better than mine, and we're always trying to improve. So they are subscribing to this idea of that right. generational benefits compound. Right. And then they have selective understanding when they don't like where that reasoning leads them. Right. So all of a sudden now we're pretending like, no, when I was born, the world started. Right. And I want you to talk about the culture that you grew up in and your attitudes towards and your friends' attitudes towards education, the peer pressure aspect of it. Because our peers influence us more than our parents do at some point. Right. Did you experience any of this uh, people giving you a hard time when you started becoming successful or when you wanted to stay in school and, and emphasize your own education? You know. Or is that overblown? No, it's not. Uh, in some ways it's overblown, but it's not a non-material discussion point. You know, it, it does matter. Now, growing up, I didn't worry very much about the peer pressure that I would face for being more focused on my studies because, honestly, my, my need to help alleviate my mom's situation had a stronger gravitational pull on me than whatever my fellow knucklehead fourth graders thought. I don't care what they think. If I, you know, you have to manage it. It's not like it's a non-factor. But the gravitational pull of that couldn't really compete with what I saw my mom trying to manage. And so I, I was okay, you know, and I didn't, I wasn't a nerdy kid. I played all the sports, right? I got into a ton of fights. So I was not that poor defenseless nerdy kid. That's not who I am. I'm a guy who goes in peace, but you know, I can take care of myself. So my real thing, and I don't want to speak for my peers views on education is better for me to think, to speak on what I observed by the behaviors. And here's what I saw. If you let a child get beyond elementary school and they aren't equipped to be proficient learners, then they start seeking cool points on the things that they are better at. And then you can never get them back to trying to sort of focus on developing their intellect because they, they will get no cool points for it. They can't perform well in that area. So we deal a crippling blow to children that we do not give the proper elementary school education so that they can become proficient and feel as if they belong in that pursuit. That, in my mind, is what generates the peer pressure. Once you get beyond elementary school to tell a kid, for one kid to tell another, I can't believe that you're trying to do well in school. They'll wrap whatever phrasing around that that they want what they're really trying to do is to pull more people into the activities they're engaged in where they can get cool points. It's not the peer pressure among one another that wells up organically. That peer pressure is a reflection of our failure as a society to invest in their learning when they're in elementary school. That's where I think that comes from. My friends in the Grove that I grew up with, and I am still in touch with those guys. They're still an important part of my community, those guys and those women. And none of them had negative things to me to say as I tried to pursue my dreams. You know, they wanted the best for me just like they want the best for themselves. 
But if we fail them when they're in elementary school, they're going to go into the pathway where they find themselves more organically aligned with what it takes to be successful. How many of your friends would you say from back where you grew up, how many of them do you feel have escaped not being able to realize whatever dreams they had? Like how many would you say have become what they wanted to become? That's math that I won't be able to do. And here's, here's why I don't have access to all of their dreams, hopes, and ambitions. Like I don't know what their ultimate goals were. The math I can perform for you though is this. 100% of those who were growing up in poverty were deeply impacted by it. Poverty doesn't just sort of hover around you and escort you as you go through life. It impacts your journey heavily. Just think of any moment in time when you needed a resource to make something work well for you. The next thing. Poverty is that thing that says you don't have that resource. And I can't think of a day that's gone by when I haven't needed a resource to make something work well for me. And before I graduated law school, poverty said you don't have that thing. That's true of my friends as well. I am no different than they are. It's not like I graduated number one in my class at Spruce, you know. So there were other folks there who were clearly brighter than I was. They at least performed better. And so poverty burdened all of our journeys who were impoverished in that neighborhood. Poverty is a kind of trauma. I mean, you could speak of it that way. If you had early trauma that you lived in or experienced, the trauma doesn't go away just when the proximate cause goes away. That's right. That it becomes something that you have that you live with and gets incorporated into your thinking. And as you mentioned here, it sounds like there's a part of you that's still that eight-year-old boy that, that didn't just go away. That became the thing that the adult grew on top of, not yeah. replaced. Yeah, that's... You know, the essence of my soul you know, includes all of those experiences. And I want to see the world through the lens of nine-year-old me. When I vote, I don't vote the interest of me today because I am fine. I vote the interest of nine-year-old me. And if you really want to help alleviate some of the challenges that we're facing, vote your own interest less and vote the interests of the folks in this society who you think are suffering most. For me, it helps to keep me feeling as if I'm participating in American politics the way that I am supposed to in a representative democracy where we're looking out for each other and look out for those who are in the position I was in once. Coming up next, Randy and I conclude our conversation. We talk about how to have productive conversations and something Randy has done with his wealth, his energy, and his time to make a difference in his community and to honor a special person. Stay with us. You're listening to A Conversation Between Friends, benefiting at last. For more information, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin the discussion with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. I think this is interesting. The way that you handle your white friends who've said such things is I don't want to hear anything that happened before. You're so good at handling people, it's ridiculous. It's Even the way you handle me is so funny. Uh, I, I, can ask, with that. I can ask dumbass questions, but you don't uh, spend much time dwelling on the dumbassness of the question. You, <laughs> you, will, you will gently guide it into something that is helpful and, and insightful as opposed to telling me, you know, you were really stupid for saying this or thinking this or whatever. No, you do fine. You do fine. 
but I, I think it brings up an an interesting mechanism with which we can make things better. In now our public conversation seems to be oftentimes marked by stopping down and critiquing someone's words mm-hmm. rather than trying to listen for their intent or heart or direction. Right. And I know that, and I have some friends that, that do this, you know, that anytime they can jump on someone, they do. And then they dismiss that person and their concerns and don't listen to them. And I think that has the polarizing effect of then driving people into pockets where they are accepted. Right. Which, to the detriment of all of us, we go to our corners. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of this country is to at least have the common ground where we are all listening to each other and trying to move forward with our common ideals. Right. As opposed to arguing about the ideals that we don't share uh, ad infinitum. Right. And you've been such a good example to me of someone who does listen and when I get things wrong or I am tone deaf on something, you're able to gently steer the conversation into a productive way. And that's something that I admire in you and I try to emulate because you you actually listen to other people. Like you, I have no doubt that you have my best best interest at heart and that in turn makes me even more uh, connected to you and having your best interest at heart. Yeah. And I think a lot of these conversations lack that particularly when we get into politics or race or any other third rail type thing. It used to be religion, but it seems to have gone away as far as the things that people used to argue about. Politics seems to be the number one thing now, but race and its intersection with those politics also. Yeah. And I probably did have a point to this when I started talking, Randy, and well, I've forgotten it. So well, you made can an you save me once again? Well, you made an interesting point. And it's, you know, the bottom line, the bottom line is this. I need that grace from others because I promise you I'm not going to go through this world failing to say something that doesn't fully reflect what I was trying to communicate. And at the same time, there are some utterances that you can make that sit beyond someone's ability to rescue. And that becomes your work and your work alone. In my conversations with my son, my son, Malcolm, you know, Malcolm, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I, um, shared with him on more than one occasion is this notion of when you're listening to someone, even if you're talking about something you don't agree on, or even if you have different positions on something, don't listen for the part where they're wrong or where their argument diverges from yours. Listen for the part where they're right and how you can use that to refine your thoughts on it and to make your thoughts better. And then you can always circle back at the end and talk about the pieces that you see differently. But then you're having a conversation where each of you is growing based on what the other has said. It's not important to be right in that conversation. It's important to lead that conversation better than you entered it. But it's also important not to leave unaddressed something that is clearly wrong. And so I try to learn in speaking with people, and I've been able to learn a lot in my conversations with you over now a couple of decades. I do want to get to another way you inspire me, which is that you've taken your incredible blessings and, and fortunes, not just monetary fortunes, your fortunate blessings. Have I just talked into circle there? I think I did. 
I'll hit other geometric shapes <laughs> later on, but we'll do still with the circle. You're good. You've taken, you know, what all the good things that have happened in your life and the position that you find yourself in life, and you've done good with it. And it's tremendously inspiring. What I love about you is that your brain seems to be so organized that you told me a long time ago, once I finished with this business, and at the time you were running a multi-million dollar business that you had built from scratch with a few other people, um, you said, once I'm finished with this business, I'm going to turn my attention to this and I'm going to do this project that we're about to discuss. And I remember thinking, most people I talk to, you know, they have ideas and they have intentions. And then when you talk to them after they've retired from that business, you say, yeah, I am going to do that. I'm going to get around to that and I'm going to do that. And that's the update you get from them. But I'll be darned. I swear to God, you follow through on everything you've ever told me you were going to do. <laughs> it is unbelievable that you have such a, a tremendous virtue in that area. You started something. Uh, you knew you wanted to do something with education. Right. And you knew you wanted to do something to honor someone who had really impacted your life. Tell me what that was. Yeah, so it's – and thank you for your, your kind words. I, I appreciate uh, your sharing – with me sort of over the air, what you shared with me in friendship. So thank you. Um, it's called at last a T L a S T at last. And we call it an urban boarding experience because it's not a boarding school. Like we are not a school. One of the things that we learned, and this has been true since as long as anyone listening to this has been alive. Here's the fact, the kids who perform best in school, are those who come out of families, out of households that have access to middle class or above educational resources and tools at home from three in the afternoon until eight the next morning. Those are the kids who perform best in school. Even when you control for gender, race, quality of school, those are the kids who perform best. So if that's the fact, then it begs a question. And here's a question it, be it begs. How would impoverished kids perform if you gave them the benefit of coming out of households that had middle class or above educational resources and tools. And so that's what Atlas does. We plunk ourselves down in the most challenging neighborhoods that we can find. And then we build residences and we infuse those residences with the kind of educational resources and tools that would be present in a middle class or, or above home. And then we empower parents and grandparents to choose to send their elementary school age kids to have the benefit of those resources and tools from three in the afternoon until eight the next morning. That's what at last is. It's over on Overton road. And we have been tremendously well supported by the neighborhood that surrounds it. The elected officials who represent them, the faith leaders in the area, even the organizers, community organizers and activists that live over there. It's really been well received. The philanthropic community has been kind to us. And I think the business community is starting to make room for us. So we've been really, really fortunate. You, you mentioned why it is that I do this. And it's, it's my way at this point in my life to honor the journey that my mother and I traveled raising this family in the Grove. And, you know, I spent my first, I think I told you, I, went, I spent my life sort of in three buckets. That's sort of how I see it. The first 25 years, I was in fairly challenging poverty. The next 25 years I spent getting that family that I always wanted to, to have when I was a kid, finding the woman who would be my soulmate, and then raising Malcolm and Rachel you know, to a point of pride and satisfaction. And so that was the second 25 years. 
in this last 25 years of good cognitive, right? Because you don't want me solving complex stuff after 75. This last 25 years of good cognitive, I wanted to spend honoring the journey I was on with my mom during my first 25 years. And so that for us was about access to healthcare, urban revitalization, and education. So at last is the educational component of that focus. And I feel lifted doing that work because I do it in honor of my mom and her tremendous sacrifice. In a sense, it is an extension of the home, yes. not, not in antithesis to the home. Yeah, we're supplementing good homes. We're not replacing bad homes. You know, these are not troubled kids. These are not bad parents. These are people who find themselves, like my mom found herself, without the resources to give the kid the educational tailwind that they wanted them to have. This program was created really with two stakeholders in mind. Number one, that impoverished mom or under-resourced mom like my own, who looked over at her kids and felt badly that she wasn't giving them what she always envisioned giving her kids as a mom. So it's for that person and it's for nine-year-old me who's looking around saying, how in the world am I supposed to make something work out of this? It serves those two by supplementing the resource base that they have. We play in the background. The parent is the hero because they're the one who made us available to that child. So we will take in our first uh, set of scholars in residence this fall. And the life there is actually going to be really, really good. They're going to be in the neighborhood that they're accustomed to growing up in. They're going to attend the school that the parent chooses for them to attend. And then they're going to come home to a secondary supplemental residence that gives them all of the advantages that they would have had had they been fortunate enough to be born into a family with more prosperity. So there will be tutors slash counselors there after school to help them with that critical three to seven period when the academic focus is really intense. It's high pragmatics, low theory. That's how I like my innovation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that you know that me and your my fellow musers certainly support. and, and we, You guys have been incredible. Hey, uh, As has Donovan. Yes. You guys have been incredible. And you know that you can count on us for anything. And if you ever need a tutor to come in and talk to them about broadcasting. Hey. I'm there. Hey. I know you're there. <laughs> Right. I know you, you would right. take them through the hard fundamentals, man, to make sure to sound. So this is supposed to be the first, I'm assuming this fall is supposed to be the first incoming class, right? Yeah. That's what you said. Uh, and I hope COVID doesn't put that off or, or change that in any way. I don't know what your thoughts are there. I guess you're still dealing with that issue as facts become available. Well, you know, I, I owned a logistics company. After I practiced law, I owned a logistics company along with my business partner, Mitchell Ward, for 17 years. If I don't know anything else, I'm really good with processes. You know, I'm really good with creating the infrastructure within a business that feeds processes. All the stuff that you guys find so boring when you talk about it on the radio. Oh, I know. I know, man. You it, mentioned logistics, and, and I glaze just, over. Yeah, I saw it. I like, saw he's it. my friend, but I have no interest <laughs> in logistics. <laughs> like, this brother needs to stop talking about that now. So if I don't know anything else, I know how to prepare for an alternative environment that presents. COVID is an alternative environment. We've already created a standard operating profile for non-COVID, and that preceded it. And now we've created one for a COVID environment. And we're working with 
a top epidemiologist over at Parkland, and Fred Cerise, the, the good CEO over at Parkland. We're set for whatever operating environment confronts us. But we are going to be subject to what the governor decides, what the county judge decides, and what these schools decide that the children are attending. But we will be fine. Well, I love you. And I love you too, brother. And I hope we do this again, and I think we are going to do it again. I'm committed to – there's no one I love hashing out the world with than you. <laughs> it's always it always an uplifting experience for me. We get a chance to listen, learn, and grow. It's good stuff. Thanks for coming to the bunker. All right, brother. Good to see you. All right. Thank you. That's Randy Bowman. He's the creator of the very innovative At Last Urban Boarding Experience. It's a program that gives children from impoverished backgrounds the same chances and resources that you would find in more affluent households. And I encourage you to go to their website, atlastboarding.com, A-T-L-A-S-T-B-O-A-R-D-I-N-G.com, atlastboarding.com, and learn more about it. You know, people ask all the time, what can I do? I hear the hurt of my fellow man. Uh, I hear pain. I see what's going on. My eyes have been opened in some cases, but the problems are so huge and multifaceted. What can I do? What can I do? Well, one thing you can do is donate to Randy's work and help someone like him that has done so much to help others, especially me. So thank you for listening. I love this radio station. I know this sounds really cheesy, but I'm going to say it. I love this radio station. Thanks for listening to this special. So long, I paused so long because I was. Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. (laughs) Uh, I got choked up, and and I suck when I choke up. I'm like I real. I choke when I choke up. Does that make sense? I love this station, and um, it's been a part of our community for 26 years now, which is unbelievable. I can't get over that stat. We're a family. It feels like a family. The listeners, the hosts, the ticket anchors the promo people, the board operators with itchy trigger fingers, all part of this big family. And I know that we have those in our listening family who don't like it when we talk about uncomfortable issues, but thank you for listening tonight if you did. And I promise you that if you listen with an open heart to things like this, I'll do the same to you. So thanks for spending some time with me and my buddy, the great Randy Bowman. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to this special ticket broadcast of A Conversation Between Friends with Randy Bowman and Gordon Keith. For more information on how you can help, go to atlastboarding.com. We now rejoin our regularly scheduled programming already in progress on Sports Radio 96.7 and 1310, The Ticket. KTCK AM, Dallas, Fort Worth. KTCK FM, Flower Mound.